The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. The anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that you give us understanding. We pray not just that our brains will be active in understanding the words that are on the page, physically in front of us, but that we will have true understanding of what they mean more than even what they mean, where in our life they are instructing and correcting us. We lack the ability to properly know ourselves. We seek it in many ways. But I pray that this morning we seek it directly from you that you would correct areas of our life that only you know. That you would apply this passage deeply to the dark crevices of our heart where sin hides. I pray most of all that you would exalt the name of Christ in our eyes this morning that we would see Him as a true Savior, as one compassionate and merciful, who died that we may have eternal life. I pray that you would give us that this morning, through this passage, in Jesus' name, amen. What is it that makes a good leader There are bookstores aplenty. If you walk in uh, Barnes & Noble down the street or any other bookstore, you're going to find entire sections, shelves even, dedicated to the topic of leadership. Twelve principles on this, ten steps to that. Ways to be a good leader. Here's how to cast vision. All kinds of things that are given to you as the definition of true and proper leadership. It's a subject that people buy books on left and right, but the irony of it is, everyone you talk to is already an expert. Anybody that's ever sat under someone leading anything has said to the person next to them, that's not how I would do it. (laughs) Because everybody, when it comes to leadership, has an opinion. They're all an expert, rarely can be taught. When it comes to asking the question, what makes a good leader, there are books aplenty written on that, some of them way off base, some of them might be more helpful. But when it comes to the question, what makes a good follower, 
the world is notably silent. In fact, the best book I know of that's written on being able to follow is the one you've got in your lap. Perhaps the best-selling book of all time is written to direct you how to follow. Our passage this morning, David is sharing his final words, and I think for the most part, this passage has been understood largely to be an exhortation on leadership, strictly, often applied only in that direction. But I think it's actually both. I think it's talking about leadership and following. It's David's exhortation in his last words to the people of Israel on what it means to be a good leader, yes, but also what it means to be a bad follower. Hopefully, this passage will help us identify both of those things. Maybe we can perhaps look at the world again through the filter that David gives to us here in this passage. Now, as we start out, what I've said from the beginning of this little section at the end of 2 Samuel is that from chapters 21 to 24, David is really, or the author of 2 Samuel is really summarizing all of the concepts that have been unpacked in the book so far. He's really helping in chapters 21 to 24 to kind of wrap your mind around all of the many stories that have been taught to us so far. So it's incumbent on me as we get closer to the end of 2 Samuel, yes, we will eventually finish the book, as we get closer to the end to, to really think back on all the many threads of the stories that have been opened so far that this is helping to resolve before we get to our text. So remember when, when, we, when I started this study through books 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel, through both of them, I said at the beginning that Hannah's prayer really captures the theme of the book. Most of the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel is really derived from what she prays there in chapter 2. And what she says there will kind of play out in the stories that you see unfolding in the various chapters that come after it. She's going to get to this theme of God bringing low those who are mighty and raising up those who are weak. It, lo- it would do us good to reread Hannah's prayer, which is back in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 of 1 Samuel. So if you, you want to turn back there, you can. It will also appear on the screen behind me. It says this, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them, to, to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world." He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Remember that the context in which that prayer that proclamation comes in is Hannah, who is a barren woman. And she has sought from the Lord a child 
for a long time, and he has not answered in the affirmative. And so she is exhausted, exasperated, she is in tears, and she leaves her family and is walking off. She's just taking a walk. And she's in tears and she's praying out to the Lord and the priest Eli sees her and assumes that she's drunk. And he chastises her for what he assumes is drunkenness and she explains the situation. No, no, I'm crying out to the Lord. And he blesses her and he says, well, may the Lord answer your prayer. And lo and behold, the Lord answers her prayer. She promises the Lord, look, if you give me a child, I will dedicate him to your service for all the days of his life. No razor will touch his head, meaning he will become a priest. He will take a, make sure he takes a vow to be a priest for the rest of his life. And the Lord answers her prayer. And that signal to Hannah is something significant. It's that the Lord is actually doing something here. Once she promises, she dedicates this child to him for the rest of the child's life. He answers her prayer, and so Hannah responds realizing the Lord is doing something bigger here, which is the inspiration behind this prayer. The Lord is visiting this barren woman named Hannah, and He's giving her a child. And this is a clue to Hannah that God is reversing the fortunes, not just of Hannah, but reversing the fortunes of the poor and needy abroad. That He's actually beginning to act as a way of saving the nation around Hannah. So I selected a snippet from her prayer to kind of capture exactly what I'm trying to highlight as the main point running throughout this book, that the Lord is raising up from the ash heap all those who are needy and in hope of giving them salvation, which is why the sermon series was titled out of the ashes. We see first here in Hannah, in her prayer, uh, not only that he is raising up the needy, but we see this actually reflected throughout the story. As she has her child Samuel, she here's the son of a barren woman, she dedicates him to the Lord and she gives him to the priest Eli to raise in the temple. And she visits him and gives him new clothes as he grows and all of those things. But even as a little boy, this little Samuel is in the temple or there in the priestly quarters and the Lord chooses Samuel over Eli. He visits Samuel and speaks to Samuel over Eli as a means of not only choosing Samuel, but also rejecting the current priesthood in Eli. And so the Lord communicates to, uh, to and through Samuel, but rejects, rejects Eli. It's a sign again that the Lord is visiting the lowly and exalting them and taking those who are in lofty positions like the current priest and bringing them down. But ultimately, we see this reflected in David, don't we? This is the biggest picture in the lion's share of both First and Second Samuel is this little shepherd boy, David. He's the youngest of his brothers. He's the smallest, he's ruddy, and he's you know, not, nothing to look at or anything like that. He's small, and when, when Samuel finds him, he's not even amongst his brothers. When he goes to anoint a son of Jesse, David is not even there. Samuel looks at the oldest and biggest brother, and he goes, that's got to be him, because he's tall, and he's big, and he's broad-shouldered, and he's handsome, and all the like. And, and the Lord says, no, it's, it's not him. And, and on down the line, he goes of all seven brothers, and it's not any of them either. And David isn't even there. He says, well, is there somebody else? And they find David, who is shepherd. Well, he's out there caring for the sheep. Sure, they don't want him, though. He's tiny. He's a little guy. He's not even old enough to do nothing. And so he seems unfit to lead God's people. But God informs Samuel, I know what you look at, but I look at the heart. And it's this one that I have chosen. Again, God raising up those that are small to a place of honor and saving them, the needy, and taking those in, who are in elevated positions and bringing them low. But equal to this theme of God raising the needy from the ash heap is the opposite also. It's in this prayer that God is cutting off the wicked in darkness. She, Hannah prays, The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. 
So the wicked who do wicked things, even under the cover of darkness, are not only seen by God, but they're going to be held to account. And Hannah is seeing this, what the Lord is doing in the grand scheme of things is that He's bringing the wicked to account and He's going to expose the deeds of darkness. So she says, The wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The wicked are those who essentially depend on their own strength. That's, that's what is being gotten at here. It's not only those who, who do things under the cover of darkness, but it's also those who reject God and they seek instead to do things by their own wisdom, by their own strength, by their own power, and essentially save themselves. And he says, she, she says they will be cut off forever. And this is also illustrated to us in several characters throughout the story. As I mentioned before, Eli, but also his sons. Remember, Eli's sons are priests in the temple. And they're doing terrible things. First of all, they're stealing the fatty portions from the sacrifice, which God said never to do. But then they're also taking advantage of the women that served in the temple in very ungodly ways. And they think that they're getting away with it. And indeed, it seems like they are for a short period of time that they're getting away with this. But the Lord sees all and knows all, and He's coming to lay them low. And so what happens to both Eli's sons and Eli is they all three die on the same day, which is what the Lord tells Eli is going to happen through Samuel. But mostly we see this in the person of Saul. Saul is clearly concerned with all of his present circumstances, over and above what the Lord tells him to do. So he disobeys. You remember that command that Samuel gives him, wait until I get there to sacrifice? And Samuel delays a little bit longer than it seems like he should take. And so Saul turns around and he sees the Philistines over here who are bearing down on him. And then he looks at his army and his army is kind of getting weak need and they're starting to run. And so Saul gets really nervous and he sees that Samuel isn't coming, it seems. And so he turns to Just do the sacrifice himself so that we can get on with the war and I don't lose any more of my men. Then later he's told to judge an entire village and instead of judging the entire village by burning it to the ground, he keeps a lot of the choice cattle for himself. Both of those scenes are a blatant rejection of what God told him to do. And so, the understanding of those stories is that both of these characters, Eli, his sons, Saul himself, they're they're all trying to prevail by their own might. Here is what God said to do, and here is what I think is best. Here's what God said to do, and here's what I think is best. And when the rubber meets the road, I'm going to choose what I think is best over and against what God says needs to be done. Trying to accomplish salvation for yourself. So if we're looking at the theme of the book, it's really this. The people that God is going to raise from the ashes and make into His people are people that recognize their neediness, that they must be dependent on Him. That's it. The people that God is going to raise from the ash heap and make into a people for Himself are the people that recognize their neediness. They see that they are in need of salvation and they come to trust and depend solely on Him. And at the same time, He's going to destroy the wicked who are characterized by those secretive and evil works and their disobedience by trying to live by their own strength. They're independent from the Lord, in other words. So, going to raise from the ash heap people who are needy and dependent on Him for salvation. And He's going to bring low those who think they do not need God whatsoever. This is what God is accomplishing in the world from then to now. This is why First and Second Samuel apply to us in a modern context. Because God has not changed. 
He is accomplishing the same goals and He's bringing it about. The thing that we have that Hannah didn't is we know now that Christ has come into the world and God's plan of salvation has been kicked into high gear. But our text this morning is now presenting David's final words. Of course, he's going to speak some more. He's going to speak at the end of 2 Samuel in a passage, not only next week, but the week after that. And he's going to speak in 1 Kings as well. This is not his, the last words he ever says in his dying breaths. This is the last reminder of what he's giving to the nation of Israel. This is his last edict. He's not saying this from his deathbed. This is his last public address. In short, this is like a psalm or maybe a proverb that he's giving as one final word to the whole congregation. And his message in this passage is really simple. It's to uphold the future of his kingdom by commissioning his line to rule justly. He is upholding the future of his kingdom. And he's commissioning his line, the people that would come after him, to rule justly. That's what he's doing. That's it. That's all he's doing. And it's a fitting place to put this last message at the end of the book, not only because we're getting closer to David's death, but as we just saw, so many of Israel's leaders through First and even really Second Samuel 2, which David is implicated in this, so many of Israel's leaders have perverted their leadership and therefore corrupted the nation. They've perverted their leadership and they've corrupted the nation as a result. So you can imagine... These last words from David come maybe by way of some herald or something, taking the scroll of David and just kind of unrolling it and saying, you know, hear ye, hear ye, your attention please, that kind of thing. And we get it here in verse 1. He says, now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So David says first right out of the gate, this is God's message. This is not just mine. This is something that God is speaking through me. This might be David's way of delivering a prophetic message. A message that he would proceed by, thus says the Lord. That's a message specifically that the Lord has said, you say this on my behalf. So here is David speaking prophetically to the rest of the nation. And the first part of the message is really addressing the blessing of what happens uh, that, f- that follows when a king rules over men justly. When a king rules over men justly. Now it's, it's hard to sometimes wrap our minds around a king, first of all, because we grew up in America and we're, you know, no kings and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so we kind of rebel against that whole idea. That's how our nation was founded anyway. And so you hear the word king and ruling over men, and you're like, never again, right? Uh, remember 1776 and all that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, so it's hard from that perspective to sort of wrap our mind around it. But also, it's hard to also wrap our mind around someone actually doing so justly, actually doing so well, actually doing so and it actually benefit the people and not squashing them under the, you know, heel of his boot or something like that. And so he's laying out the blessings that follow to people when one rules over men justly, he says. But what does it mean then to rule justly? What is that? What does it mean to rule justly? And I want you to pay attention to what he says because it's, it's really important how he clarifies this. He says uh, in the middle of verse 3, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. That's what it means to rule justly over someone. Which maybe 
raises the question in your mind, okay? What does it mean to rule in the fear of God? What, is, what does that, that phrase even mean? Now, it won't surprise you, I don't think, that this command by David, or this, this word that's given to David from the Lord, is actually re- sort of repeated, or the theme of it at least, is repeated elsewhere in the book of 1 Samuel. It defines what it means for a person to actually rule in the fear of God, and it, it kind of outlines it a little better. Now, somewhat ironically, it's stated by Samuel in his farewell address. So David is sort of taking some of Samuel's meaning and applying it here in his farewell address. But if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, again on the screen behind me, he says this, this is Samuel speaking to the congregation. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. So Samuel is essentially saying something very similar to what David is saying and maybe outlining it maybe even just a little bit better or a little more clearly He's saying that fearing God, and and even as a king ruling in the fear of God, means to serve Him, that is God, to serve God, and obey His voice. In other words, not rebel against His commands. So what does it mean for a king to rule justly over men? It's ruling in the fear of God. And what does it mean to rule in the fear of God? It means for the king to listen to the words that God is commanding, and to follow them. Think about that for just a second. Ruling in the fear of God, to listen to the words of God, and to obey them. But you understand, those aren't the kind of leaders that we look for. Those aren't the kind of leaders that we are attracted to as people, at least initially. And this book is proof of that. If our lives right now are not proof of that enough, this book is proof of that. Leaders that are attractive, leaders that are bombastic and brash and loud, leaders that have the catchy lines and phrases and things like that are the ones that we look to, the ones that are good-looking, the ones that have great hair. That's stated in this book. The ones that have great hair. The ones that are slick-tongued, that always have the 12-point plan, that took all of those leadership books at Barnes & Noble and memorized them, and are giving you the summary of all of it right there in front of you. Those are the ones, I like that guy, he's got a plan. That's the ones we gravitate towards. These are the traits of a leader that are sought after throughout this book. Saul is tall and he's handsome. He's a good fighter. David, though, is small. He's young. He's ruddy. He's not somebody that we want as a king. We want the tall guy. We want the broad shoulders. But God tells Samuel, only man looks at that nonsense. I look at the heart. Absalom What does he do? He sits at the gate and he persuades people to follow him by his slick rhetoric. But we're also told that he he has dashing good looks. And again, just to double down on this, he has great hair. He must be a good leader. Hair's got to grow from smart brains, I guess. I'm going bald. I don't know what that says. (laughs) But you see, David and Samuel are both boiling down leadership to one simple principle for evaluation. All those books that are at Barnes & Noble all be boiled down to one little thing. Does he fear God? What? That's the shortest book ever written. I just saved you like $100 of leadership books. Does he 
fear God. Consider the people in this book that came before David. Eli. What did he fear? Did he fear God? Well, no, because his sons were acting in abominable ways. Doing ungodly things with young women in the temple. Stealing sacrifices. And what did Eli do? He got fat on the sacrifices they were stealing, and he turned a blind eye to what his sons were doing with women. What did he fear? Well, he feared his sons, first of all. He feared people. Saul, we find out later on, he explicitly says it. God gives him a command. He chooses to disobey the command. And when asked why, he says, I feared the voice of the people. That's it. He feared the people, so he listened to their voice over the Lord's voice. See, David is saying here the governing principle that a ruler who rules justly must have, that governing principle is that he fears God above all. Which means that he listens to God's revealed word over and above man's tradition. Men love their traditions. I've said for a long time the strongest religion in the church is what I've always believed is them. It's stronger than Christianity inside the church walls often. What I've always believed is is when we hold on to certain dogmas that we have no evidence for in Scripture cannot back up with in Scripture, and we may even criticize others for disagreeing, but when asked to demonstrate our dogma from the text of Scripture, we instead say, that's always what I've been taught. Which is another form of what I've always believedism, what I've always been taughtism. It's just what I've always been taught-ism puts the blame on somebody else <laughs> for giving me that. And what is the effect that that kind of leader who governs by the fear of God, what, what effect does that have on the people? Well, first, his leadership, he says, dawns on the people like the morning light, like the sun on a cloudless morning. So a leader, fearing God above all, David says, leads the people then to do likewise. So, so you ask, like, well, why is that? Why, why would you boil leadership down to that simple principle? Does he fear God above everything else? And the reason is because if he fears God above everything else, then the people are going to live their lives according to his demonstration. So if he fears God above all else, then the people are likewise going to fear God above all else. So in that way, he's going to shine on them like the morning light, like sun on a cloudless morning. He's going to illuminate righteousness and righteous living for all the people that he's leading. And as a result, the people will flourish. They'll grow like grass sprouting from the earth, he says. So in other words... If he fears God above all else, he's not going to crush the people through his leadership. He's not going to oppress the people. He's not going to come down on the people. Instead, he's going to lead the people to righteousness. And rather than being trampled under his feet, they're going to grow up and flourish under that kind of leadership because they're going to learn to trust the Lord above all else too. They're going to learn what it sounds like when he doesn't listen to the voices of the people and fear their voice above gods. In other words, when he has a backbone, they're going to find out what that means. To love the Lord and fear his word above all else. The people are going to flourish. But now look at what David says in verse 5. This is where it turns. Verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Remember, these are the last words of David. 
He's going to die. David is not pretending that he's going to live forever. He's on the way out. The general principle here is that this is how good leadership should be evaluated. Not by plans, not by agendas, not by good looks, not by, again, great hair. I hope not. But one who rules in the fear of God. But you see, now this final argument takes this shift in verse 5 when he says to his congregation, this is what my house is. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and this is all the things that I've done for you. That's, that's what a bad leader would say at the moment of his death. People, consider all that I've done for you. Look at all the things that I've done for you here. That's not what he says. He's not making an argument about how good he's been to the people. That's what pagans, pagan kings do before they die. He's making an argument about what his line will do. You understand? This is what my house is going to bring to you, nation. Why? Because God made a covenant with me. This is not about what I've done. This is about what God has done through me. He has made a covenant with me and with my house forever. God, he says, will cause all of my help and all of my actions and all that I desire for the nation of Israel, all the things that I want to do, God will cause all those things to flourish. So David is essentially getting the, the people who hear his last words to look forward to look beyond the end of his life. David is doing the exact opposite of what pagan kings do, and he's instead saying, I'm not going to live forever. I'm not going to rule over you. I'm going to die. But I want you to look forward to what my line is going to do, what my line will produce in its rule. It's going to cause you to flourish. Because the king that comes from my line will rule over you not in the fear of the people, or not by his own agenda trying to accomplish salvation by his own hand, but he's going to rule over you in the fear of God. And because he does that, he's going to shine on you like light and cause you to sprout like grass. Now remember the way that Hannah at the beginning of the book says that God is going to bring righteousness about in the people, it's going to be through the leadership of his king. And he, she says this in 2.10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Essentially what David is connecting, what Hannah is connecting, all the way back, some many years prior, is that God is going to raise up a king in this line, in the house of David. And when he does, that king will rule righteously over the people in the fear of God, not capitulating, not bending down to the things that man wants him to do, but leading instead by principle in accordance with God's commandments. And what is going to be the result of that? It's going to be the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. Remember, Genesis 12 is a promise to Abraham, and, he's, and God says this, through you, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. God's creating a family, and He's saying, through you and through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And Hannah is now coming in in 1 Samuel, and David is coming in at the end of his life and saying, it's my house that's going to end up producing this king who's going to reign over you and bless you, and you're going to grow up under him like grass on the earth. It's going to be fruitful. Through him, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But you see, the end of 2 Samuel, the part that we're in right now, and even as we get to chapter 24 where David sins and is corrected in his sin in counting the people, the book of 2 Samuel is going to end with some longing. 
It's like we don't get what we're promised. Uh, what, what happened, Hannah? I thought the Lord was going to exalt His anointed and He's going to raise the needy from the ash heap and you know all this stuff. What, what happened, David? I thought your line is going to rule over justly. And then we get into 1 Kings and Solomon starts marrying a whole bunch of pagan women and, and it, goes, it goes really bad for a long time right after this. They're going to eventually be led into captivity. What happened to all those promises that you kind of laid out there that this is what God is doing? You understand that each book in the Old Testament, you're left begging for a conclusion. And each book in the Old Testament is leaving you wanting. All the things that were promised you... I don't have. Where are they? What happened? If you want to really read how depraved it can get, read the end of the book of Judges. Oh, man. It's like the nation of Israel is just going down a toilet bowl, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse until it gets as bad as it possibly can be. At the very end, parental advisory. It's horrible. And every book does that in the Old Testament. It just promises, promises, and then... What happened to it? Where is it? But you understand, from the line of David, that, that's what this passage is about. This passage is leaving us wanting that Savior from David's house to come in. And David is pointing you into the future saying, it's coming, and it's coming through this line. But let me tell you, there's going to be a whole lot of reason to doubt you get to 586 B.C. and all the people of Israel are taken off into captivity and the kings are long forgotten. And they come back into the land and they don't have a land of their own and they're ruled by Babylonians and all kinds of other pagans. And they have nothing to actually celebrate, nothing to enjoy. They have no leadership of any kind. And it looks like all of those promises that were made to Abraham and to David and to all of that was hogwash. It's not actually coming to fruition until we get to the book of Matthew, where Matthew opens his gospel by saying, I'm here to tell you about one Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, son of Abraham. See, Jesus is going to come in and actually live perfectly. This is tremendously important for our understanding of the gospel that Jesus Christ lives on the earth not merely as man, but as the God-man. That which is truly God and truly man. And not only does He live, He lives perfectly. And He's the only one who can then go to the cross and die instead of taking the righteous rewards that were rightly awarded to Him because of His life. Instead of taking them as his own possession, he instead suffers the punishment that I deserve, the wrath of God on the cross, willingly. Not bending to his own will, not seeking salvation by his own design, he prays to the Father, instead if it be your will that this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He's doing exactly what David says is a righteous leader. Not upholding his own will, but that of the Father's. So he goes to the cross willingly and drinks the cup of wrath for you and for me. So that I wouldn't receive divine retribution or punishment from God. But then on the third day, he raises from the dead. A truth claim which has not been refuted. Which in the day that it was claimed could have easily been refuted by going to the tomb, opening it up, and pulling the body out, which nobody sought to do. Why? Because it wasn't there. He got up on the third day and promises those who follow after Him in faith, those who depend on Him, the needy, He will raise from the ash heap. The one who fulfills this premise out of the ashes, is not David, but Jesus Christ. And it's only by placing our faith in Him, submitting to His rule and His authority. You see, the righteous leader that's presented in here is not, first and foremost, your pastor, 
elders of the church. It's not, first and foremost, your dad or your mom. It's not, first and foremost, your boss. It's, first and foremost, Jesus Christ. That's who this is written about. Because every single one of those leaders is going to fail. Every single one of them is going to be tyrannical in their own right, is going, to, is going to err on this side or the other. They're going to have a little bit of a weakness here. Or they're going to have a strength there. Or they're going to be imperfect in one way or the other. This passage is telling you, follower, submit to Christ first and foremost. Now, what then? What well, ask the question? What kind of follower are you? He says that here at the end in 6 and 7, worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. The worthless are what they are poured on by the sunshine of the leader of Christ. And how do they respond? In bitterness and in rejection. They're thorns. No matter how much rain pours on them, they never grow grass. They always remain thorns. And what is fitting? Rejection. There is a decision before you. What kind of follower are you? And the decision is this. I'm the kind of follower that submits to Christ as King above all. My citizenship is in heaven. My direction comes from Christ and Christ alone. Or, I'm going to accomplish salvation by my own hand. I'm going to do this myself. You know what? I've got this figured out. And I'm going to make it through life by picking myself up by my own bootstraps. Thank you. See, this is the question that First and Second Samuel are bringing to you. What kind of follower are you? Are you the kind that can submit to Christ as King or not? You see, then what does this actually say to leaders? It's not first and foremost about your leaders in your life, your pastor, elders of the church, boss, parents. It's not first and foremost about them, but it does say something about them. How is it that you as a follower evaluate the leaders that are over you Good leaders, very simply, follow Christ and they tell you to do the same. It's not about plans. It's not about leadership visions. Every single pastor out there had a 2020 vision in 2020. You know how that turned out? Two weeks later, wasn't nobody in the church. Who saw that one coming? Nobody. It's not about plans and visions. We're, we're feeble men. We can barely plan beyond the end of our nose. Good leaders follow Christ, and they tell you, do the same. So that's why the author of Hebrews comes in in Hebrews 13.7 and says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Good leaders follow Christ and they tell you to do the same so that you will follow Christ as well. Or Hebrews 13, 17, just 10 verses later, obey your leaders. Well, we get uncomfortable. Submission, uh-oh, bad word. Submit to them, oh no. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. An account to whom? They're going to stand before the living God in judgment day. Why must our leaders fear God above all else? Because you want them to understand, if you stand before God on judgment day, are you ready to give an account for that? See, if that governs our leaders, if that notion that I'm going to stand before the Lord one day and I'm going to give an account for all of this, and there's so much that I'm going to be accountable for that I'm going to have no answer for, I want that to govern my life now. I want to think about that every day. 
That will keep me, that will keep the elders of the church, that will keep any leader here from abusing authority. From neglecting things. Now, that doesn't mean you always understand the things that we do. I get that. But what is it that we want out of our leaders? We want people that understand you're going to stand before the Lord and give an account. That fear God above all else. This is ruling in the fear of God. This is what you're being asked to submit to. This is what you're being asked to emulate their way of life. Is the life that you're currently living right now one of submission to the leaders that God has appointed as your authority? Are you submitting to them as you submit to Christ? This is the question that's coming to bear in this passage. It's one that we have to answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you guide and direct us. That you clarify all things that have been said, that have been understood, that have been read this morning. That you give us instruction and conviction that you bring us to account. I pray that you apply this word to our life. That you may see the dark recesses of our heart where bitterness, perhaps rejection to authority, lack of submission, areas where we have not been good followers. Perhaps where you have pointed that out to us, would you bring us to repentance? Perhaps where we have rejected Christ altogether and sought instead to accomplish salvation by our own hand, would you bring us under conviction for that? Bring us to repentance and faith in the one true and living God, the resurrected Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.